You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And if you can hear me smiling behind the microphone, I know it's hard to hear me smiling, but you can do it a little bit. I think it's because this is a really great week to do what I do. It's fun to report and write and talk about tech and media and those worlds combining in a week when Amazon buys MGM for $8.5 billion. As you know, because you listen to this podcast, this is the first time that a big tech company has gone out and bought a big media company. We've been waiting for this for years. Now it's here. It's going to happen. Probably going to happen if they get regulatory approval. I think they will. We'll find out. And I want to talk about it some more. So I brought in Jessica Tunkel, the excellent reporter from The Information, who first broke the story about this pending deal last week. If you are listening to this podcast and you're not reading Jessica's stuff in The Information, I don't know what to tell you, but you are doing it wrong. She's great. You should read her stuff. Uh, and after I chatted with Jessica, I've got another conversation with Dan Taberski, who is, I think, quietly one of the most influential people in podcasting, along with the folks who created Serial. He more or less made the template for the nonfiction long-form podcast format we all know really well. He did influential work like Running From Cops and Missing Richard Simmons. He's now got The Line, which is a very interesting and really good new show out now. It's an audiovisual sort of two-project project sponsored by Apple. So we talked about all of that. He is a great talker, and that was a fun chat. But let's get to the news first. Here's me and Jessica Tunkel talking about Amazon and MGM. I'm here with Jessica Tunkel, and I should have apologized to start off with because it's ridiculous you haven't been on the show before. Welcome, Jessica Tunkel, who is killing it on the media beat, scoop after scoop after scoop. I read her every day at The Information. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like I've arrived. You have arrived on this podcast. I can't say anything else. You are at your office, which is also giving me weird feelings. I am so at you're, the you're office. working in an office. What is that like, Jessica Tunkel? bizarre and wonderful, and my children aren't here, which makes it even better. No kids. Do you have to, like, smell people's bad microwave lunch? Is that part of the, the deal? No, there's, there's not that many people on the floor. There's probably, like, four people on the floor, and we have our own office, so I can just close the door. So I just have to smell Martin's bad lunch. Okay, that's Martin Pierce you're referencing. All right, so that's enough office talk. Let's talk about what you do for a living. You break great media stories like one you broke last week about Amazon buying MGM. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon. This deal is expected to be announced imminently. MGM is a company that's been on the block for a long time. So when you first heard about this version of the story, did you go, oh, that makes sense? Or... This is going to be one of those things that may or may not happen, just like every other MGM deal. I mean, I actually thought it was real. Uh, my sources had very specific information. They kind of said where they were with the deal. like it, uh, And given there had just been news, just to back up for a minute, you know, remember a few weeks ago, Jeff Blackburn, who was a long-term media exec, a long-term Amazon exec, who had left the company, had just announced he was coming back to the company to head mm -hmm. up a new global media unit. 
So that plus the details of the deal made me think this was real this time, even though we've all chased this rumor for years. (laughs) So it looks real this time. Congrats for getting that story. So I have tweeted about this and blogged about it and talked about it. You tell me why you think Amazon thinks it makes sense for them to buy MGM. So I think it's a few things. I think one, all the entertainment companies are pulling back their own content for their own streaming services. So Amazon needs more content. And we all know big movies are good for customer acquisition. Amazon knows that. Everyone knows that. So MGM gives them that. And $9 billion isn't that much for Amazon. So... I but think so, it makes sense. So explain, but explain why they need to buy a studio. Amazon has been making its own stuff since 2013. What does buying MGM give them that they can't do without MGM? Well, you know, it's first of all, it's names that people know. Like the Bond franchise, obviously, is the most notable mm-hmm. movie series that MGM has. Um, we can get into the details of the challenges of that in a minute. But I think that... Amazon is really, it has shown that it can do some very good shows. Like people love Mrs. Maisel, but these aren't like big tentpole events, right? And Amazon realizes it needs more of those tentpole events to get people in. And they've they've done a few things where they've bought some older library names and redid things like Coming to America 2 is something that a lot of people talk about. Um, And I've heard it's actually done. They didn't didn't even make that one, right? Or no, they they turned to remember. Was that a Paramount one they picked up off the the scrap piece? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So I think that they just realized that having more popular names, big tentpole events will do well for the service rather than kind of the more smaller popular shows like Mrs. Maisel. So let's talk about some of the hair that comes with a, an MGM deal. They, they, This is a company that has been on the block for a while. Amazon had looked at it in the past. I was told one of the reasons they and no one else bought it was that MGM didn't really own a lot of the MGM stuff. It was committed to other services. I think you've written about this as well. I think that makes it more appealing now. Um, but the, you, you referenced Bond and sort of the issues there. Explain explain who owns who actually owns James Bond at this point. So the Broccoli family, there is a family that actually owns the Bond series. So they will they own the creative, they own the rights. MGM owns the distribution. So whoever, if Amazon, when Amazon, I should say, buys MGM, they're going to still be partnering with the Broccoli family, who, as I understand it, and this could be wrong, but I don't think they're giving up their ownership. So that leads to questions like, one, do you think uh, that Amazon is going to bring all these things out of theaters and, and just to prime video? Or do you think it'll be in theaters? And then secondarily, the premise for buying a Bond isn't just to have James Bond movies if you're Amazon. It's to have James Bond universe of television shows. Think of what the Disney is doing with Marvel, right? You just don't do one one movie. You do a bunch of movies. You do TV shows. Do you think the Broccoli family will be amenable to that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I to your first question, I do think that they will continue to release movies in theaters. I mean, I what they've been doing will look like remains to be seen. But I think that everyone realizes that there's something worth that, that there's a value into that. Um, the other part of that is I've, I don't think the Broccoli family is super happy with how MGM has been managed over the past few years. 
And I think that if, you know, having Amazon's weight behind it and having them say, you know, we're completely committed in a new way to our entertainment business and we will work with you to create these new movies and do the movies the way you want to see them made, I think is appealing to them. Let's talk about Amazon's broader media ambitions and what those ambitions are. I was I keep quoting my own tweets, which is terrible. But I was pointing out last night that both Amazon and Netflix started doing original content the same year. Um, and everyone knows that and Netflix's first show was House of Cards. And and you cannot tell me with the, the name of the first Amazon show. Maybe you can. No, uh, I actually can't. What was that? Do you know? There were betas and Alpha House. One was like a Silicon Valley show that was not called Silicon Valley. And the other was like a bunch of senators in Washington who all live in a house together. One of them was John Goodman. There was a big splashy opening at... Some museum, Jeff Bezos was there. No, all, all forgettable, didn't work. Jeff Blackburn, the guy who is now running Amazon's media, has run that process in, in before. Why don't you think Amazon has broken through in video the way Netflix has uh, and the way certainly Disney and other uh, pure streamers have? And what do you think is going to change now, if anything? They're obviously, spend, they're obviously throwing more money at this. They want something out of it they're not getting. What do you think? How do you think that will work? So I think historically, Amazon has seen its entertainment business as more of a loss leader because it's all about Amazon Prime up until up until now. I, I honestly think that might be changing now. And I think that the new Amazon, I think obviously Amazon Prime is very important to the company, but I do think that they're really focused on IMDb and their free ad supported service and selling ads. I think the advertising business for Amazon has taken a whole new priority. And that's a lot of the reason I think that they're more serious about entertainment now. So let's get your eyeballs onto Amazon, not necessarily because we want you to buy Prime. Prime. We assume you already have bought Prime at this point. They have like 200 exactly. million people worldwide. And we would like to sell you some subscriptions to HBO or whatever while you're here, but also look at some free content and, and watch some ads. Right. Exactly. And then you could even take it a step further. I mean, if you look at what Blackburn is going to be overseeing, he's overseeing Twitch, the gaming unit. He's overseeing podcasts. He's overseeing music. He's overseeing entertainment. And I think that they haven't done a lot to bring that all together. I don't know if you saw uh, yesterday, AT&T CEO John Stanky kind of talked about how the companies that are going to be most successful in this yeah. space are the ones that bring all these things together. Amazon's pretty well positioned to do that. Yeah, I, I saw the summary that Martin Pierce, your boss, wrote uh, <laughs> of, of John Stanky's comments. And I just can't get over the idea that John Stanky, who two years ago was explaining why AT&T was in the right position to to break, to be one of the top streaming services, now says, oh, yeah, we're not that. That's not what we're going to do. And everyone just sort of nods and moves on. It's it's pretty wild. Um, let's talk quickly about some other M&A. Uh, some you've reported on, some you haven't. Last week, you reported that Axios, which had been previously uh, supposed to be linking up with The Athletic, is now in talks to sell itself to Axel Springer. That would be Axel Springer's, what, third big media purchase. They bought the FT. They bought Business Insider. Maybe a little bit of money there. Uh, and now, now talking to Axios. How far along are those talks, do you think? I think they're pretty far along. Um, I mean, I don't know if it's like about to sign a deal, but my sense was like valuation was being discussed and it was pretty advanced. So... So a couple of weeks before, Axios was supposedly going to do a SPAC with The Athletic. Um, and we always worry about, you know, when we're reporting M&A deals like early talks, advanced talks. Do you think this is something that we were sort of doing at the same time and then ditched The Athletic? Or do you think this showed up as soon as they were done talking to The Athletic? I think that 
that article was a nice telegraph to the market that Axios is for sale and Axel Springer maybe started taking it more seriously. I think they're definitely for sale. Jim Manhai would be quite clear about that. Well, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Jim. If you're listening, I think he listens. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he listens. Um, do you think that's a synergy play that somehow that gets connected to Insider, which also bought, uh, oh my God, I wrote about it, uh, Morning Brew right. last year, and this is all one big publishing unit, or are these different publishing houses that all happen to be owned by the same company? I personally think that they need to bring all these things together. Like Even when there were these talks between The Athletic and Axios as being like two separate companies that would be underneath the parent company, I think that works in certain circumstances, your company included. But I, I, I think that they bring it all together in some way. Also, I mean, the other thing to remember is that Axel Springer is a joint venture with Politico Europe. So these, these companies are, and the founders of Politico, Tim Van Hei came from Politico. So they're all like, have been working together for a while and circling each other. So the, the and then The Athletic, which we were just talking about, uh, Sarah Fisher over at Axios, it's very incestuous, all this media reporting, <laughs> reports that uh, The Times is now talking to The Athletic. What do you think of that proposed deal? You know, I'm, I think it makes a ton of sense. I, I had heard, I mean, I'd heard that they were talking like before the pandemic, but yep. nothing came out of it. I am surprised that they're, I guess part of me is wondering if the New York Times is going to pay what it needs to pay to buy the athletic. It's just, so you need to pay what the athletic wants for well, right. its business. To be yes. clear, to pay what the athletic wants. So I think it's a very obvious home for the athletic. And I think it makes a lot of sense for the New York Times. I just am not completely convinced that they'll do it. That the price does seem like a sticking point. Uh, no one knows what it is, but I know the athletic thinks very highly of itself. It was uh, people have been skeptical about it for a long time. Whether people would actually pay for subscriptions, they have. They seem to have survived the pandemic and, and you know a good six months of no sports reasonably effectively. The last I heard, they were pretty confident they were going to raise another round. So who knows where all this goes? But why do you think the two of them fit together? Why does the New York Times and the Athletic make sense? Because I think going to the New York Times for both national news as well as national sports and then getting really local into sports, it all kind of works very well together. So you think you merge the properties together? You don't keep them as separate properties? Do you merge the properties or is it like an extra offshoot of like a bundle of some sort maybe? That's, I assume the latter, that, that you know, the New York Times doesn't cover any sports. They have almost no sports desk at all. And that seem, they seem to be very comfortable with that. I would assume they would say, hey, if you like the Times and you want to read about sports, here's another product we can sell you. And that's the pitch. That's what I assume, too. I think that makes more sense. Um, and then there's, you know, The Athletic also has been looking to expand internationally. There could be some interesting products that come off of that. I mean... I, I don't have insight into this, but I think the athletics cash burn is pretty high. So to have a little more backing would be, I mean, it's a really strong product and has a strong vision. So I think it would be really interesting to see what the two could do together. Right. And the premise is if the, some of that burn problem gets better once you, you attach the New York Times subscription engine to their subscription, you, you're not duplicating exactly. stuff. You can save some money there. So we're talking about Axios and The Athletic. Those are two of the buzziest startups, media startups, uh, to show up in, in the last few years. Is it a coincidence that two of the buzziest startups that have very good stories but remain private are, are looking for buyers now where, you know, previously that was BuzzFeed and Vox and Vice and we're all kind of hanging out waiting for something to happen? 
Well, it, the question is like, what happened to SPAC mania, SPACalooza? Mm-hmm. Like that was, I think only two weeks ago we were talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> like where did all the SPACs go? Um, I think everyone's kind of finding their merger. Like, can we get acquired? Because I think the SPAC situation is looking a little bleak right now. We did have a SPAC discussion here a few weeks ago. And like you said, there's now the, the SPAC market has turned, which I think is kind of funny. But the rationales for why you know a media company like a BuzzFeed or a Group Nine or a Vice would all have been interested in a SPAC and aren't interested now doesn't really seem to make any sense. If you wanted to go public, you still want to go public, right? And if you thought those were worthwhile companies to be public, you wouldn't care if they were SPAC'd or they did a direct listing or they did a traditional IPO. So can you can you translate what what's what's <laughs> happened in the market cuz I it, I the, the answers to this question I've seen don't make any sense. Yes, no. It's not that the companies all of a sudden decided that spacking spacking. I'm not using it as a verb. I'm going to just continue saying the word over and over again, but it's not all of a sudden that you going to the SPAC route doesn't make sense to raise liquidity. The problem is, is that the investors that they need to invest in these SPACs, known as pipe investors, are a lot more concerned today than they were. These are big institutional investors that would have exactly. put money in at the same time the thing went public. So it wasn't just that you sold shares to people like me or, or the general public, is that you were sharing, selling slack, um, a big slug of this company to a Fidelity or whomever. Right. And you need those investors to go public, right? They need to be there for that. And I don't think they are right now. I think they're pretty worried about it. It does seem like we're waiting to hear, like BuzzFeed seems to be the most far along with this process, but we haven't heard anything. Um, We've mentioned BuzzFeed and Vice and who else? Uh, group nine. We ha- I haven't heard you mention Vox. Well, you just referenced, you did reference Vox. So that, that segue doesn't work so well. Anyway, what's going to happen to my company? Who am I going to work for next year? I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I have an educated guess, but it's not based on any reporting. But let's go. I think you guys just go public, like not SPAC. Just do it the traditional way. I'm nodding my head. Maybe do a few more little tuck in acquisitions like the Pre Barrara podcast that you guys just bought. And like the skim, I could see you guys buying the skim. Lovely, lovely people who work there. Smart people who work there. There's lots of, I think they are definitely, I think they are definitely looking around for smaller deals. There's not a, a lot of money to throw at a big deal. Uh, and we did a big deal a couple of years ago with New York Magazine. That worked out pretty well. Hello, New York right. Magazine. Okay, so you think I'm going to be, a, a, if I continue to work at Vox Media, I'm going to be working for a public company in the mid to near future. I think so. I could see it. All right. Well, if that happens, I will credit you with that scoop, Jessica. Excellent. Thank you. That means I don't have to report it out. So perfect. (laughs) We'll tell your bosses. Jessica Nichols, so great to see you. I cannot wait to see you in person. Thanks for coming. Same here. Have a great one, Peter. Thanks. Thanks again to Jessica. In a minute, we're going to hear from Dan Taberski. But first, a word from our sponsor. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming. There's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, but first, let's talk about the podcast. It's out now. You can hear it in its entirety. Um, like I said, it's about the Eddie Gallagher case, which 
I remember reasonably well. It was covered a lot in various yeah. instances. Why did you decide you wanted to spend, it sounds like a, a year of your life working on this story. Yeah, more. Um, you know, uh, I was approached by Alex Gibney and Apple uh, to see if I'd be interested in talking about this uh, and sort of taking it on. Uh, and I, I spent about a month just listening and reading and uh, just going back and looking at the trial. Uh, and the way you can talk about a trial over the course of a year and a half is very different than the way you can talk about a trial as it's happening. Um, and so just the minute that you sort of take a breath and, and look back and see what the whole story was, it just became so much clearer that the story was much bigger than just than just Eddie Gallagher and what was going on day to day in the trial. I also thought it was interesting. Um, the reactions to it were very interesting. The reaction on, uh, which I guess you would say the right, I guess ha half the people watching the story were basically like, he's innocent, but mm -hmm. does it really matter? Uh, you know, he killed an ISIS prisoner. Does it really matter? Like, they, 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 does it matter when the good guys cross the line? And the other side was, he's literally a monster. Um, and uh, regardless of the fact if he was acquitted of most of the serious charges. And, and so I just thought that was the, the sort of dehumanizing on the one side and the sort of giving him a free pass on the other. Just kind of really, there was a huge gap in there that I thought was interesting to explore. I want to talk about Alice Gibney and Apple in a bit, but let's let's stick with the the podcast itself. It's a true crime story. It's a it's a courtroom drama. It's kind of who done it, but sort of like you just said, there's kind of there's not a lot of question about about the fact that Eddie, Eddie Gallagher at least was partially responsible for for killing an Afghan prisoner. Um, at the end of the podcast, there is a sort of a, a reveal. I don't know if we can if we. Do we call this a spoiler since the podcast is out and people are writing news stories about it? Was was the idea that you wanted to work up to that or was the or is that sort of almost immaterial to you in, in telling the story? Because you're telling the story about the trial, but you're also telling the story that seals culture and PTSD and, and so yeah. what it's like to employ these people as as are sort of our primary our primary weapons in, in war right now. Yeah, I mean, at the end, you know, Eddie Gallagher says um, says some things that 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 fly directly in the face of what he had been saying all along and what they had been saying in court. Um, it's it shocked me, uh, it, and you know, it shocked my whole team. Uh, but that was never anticipated. That was just that was like the last conversation I had with him. He he sort of dropped all this stuff. Um, and and so uh, that was never part of the plan. The plan was to talk about the Gallagher case, um, the impact on him, the impact on his family, more importantly, the impact on the platoons who were making the allegations, um, and then the larger story of the SEALs uh, and the Forever Wars. Um, you know, the, the Gallagher the Gallagher case is, is salacious in its own ways. Like it's it's fascinating. It's which is kind of almost undeniable as you're as you're watching it play out. But it's also just one example of sort of transgression that's been happening in the special operations community in the past, say, 10 or so years. Um, and I, it, it felt like that exploring that was was just a much more interesting thing to do. I was listening to your podcast and thinking a lot about the way that I, who have zero experience with the military, other than watching them on 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 the news and in, 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 in portrayals on TV and in, in, in the movies mm. um, have generally um, we valorize these guys. I, I, I was always, I always think about the image of, of watching these bearded dudes on horseback riding uh, at the very early stages of the Afghan war and thinking that's wild. I didn't know we did that. Incredible. Yeah. And, and thinking in your podcast about the way that you sort of are straddling the tension, straddling the tension is the wrong way of putting it between 
being in awe of these guys. They're they're almost literally superheroes. Um, you also take great pains to show how deeply flawed they are. Um, and you have sympathy for those flaws. Uh, and then also, you know, at least one of them is, has done something horrific. Yeah. I'm just wondering how you sort of navigate uh, telling that complex of a story about both one guy and sort of a culture at large. Like it seems like you have real empathy and, and, and respect for what the seals are doing. And then you also think there, there's obviously deep flaws with them. Yeah. I mean, I don't think empathy needs to be separate from being critical. Uh, and, and I, and I think that's how we approach this whole thing. Uh, that we weren't going to valorize them, uh, that we, we weren't going to talk to them as, as only heroes. And, when we, and we reached out to the Department of Defense to see if they would sort of cooperate, which was, I, I will admit, way down on my list of things that I wanted to do or people I wanted to talk to. I mean, I wanted to talk to the people who, were, who, who are doing the fighting, not the sort of larger system, right? But even the, even the Department of Defense, they, they basically said no, and they said, how about a Medal of Honor winner? And Which is just like the least interesting thing about what these guys are doing, in, in my opinion. Uh, so the goal was just to reach out. And they call themselves acquired professionals. They do not talk to other people. You know, that, that that's part of their ethos. They don't talk about what they do or they're not supposed to. Um, so even getting them to do that in the beginning was quite difficult. But I think it became easier as they realized that we weren't doing the heroism thing. We weren't doing the valor thing. We literally just wanted to talk to them as human beings who were having a completely rarefied experience that is almost impossible to understand. Um, and to try to sort of, you know, approach it, you know, with a sort of open head, open heart and, and, and just see not just what it is they're experiencing, how it's impacting them and how they experience the sort of very gray world that the rest of us insists must be very black and white. So they're supposed to be quiet. Um, you know, in this case, it's extraordinary for so several reasons, right? Like a bunch of them testified against their own commanding officer in open court. That's extraordinary. Um, Eddie Gallagher is not your standard post seal. He's, he's on an Instagram page hawking merch. Did you imagine going into this that you may not be able to get anybody on the record or even better on tape talking about this? No. Uh, and I will say part of that is just because of the uh, the, the, the team I work with, uh, my, my producers uh, are amazing. And, and one in particular, Diane Hodson, who I've been working with since my first podcast, uh, just has a real um, knack and interest in jumping into um, – into into entire worlds and entire communities and just spending months and months there talking to people and getting them comfortable with what we're doing. Um, so I, I wasn't super worried about that. What I wanted was breadth. Like, I didn't just want to talk to one or two. I didn't want to talk to the ones that are putting those folks out there. So we talked to a couple of relatively high-profile SEALs, but then we talked to a lot who have never talked about being a SEAL before. They are not public people at all. They are very private people. And um, I wanted breadth. I, I wanted to be able to say with some confidence that the opinions that I had gathered after spending all this time, uh, the opinions that I gathered about Eddie Gallagher and what had happened on Mosul were based in some sort of knowledge. And the only way to get that knowledge is just to, is just to spend hours and hours and hours talking to these people, which is fascinating. They're fascinating people. You lay out a pretty convincing case by the end of the series that, that, that this is a specific group of people that are specifically damaged and we're probably not reckoning with that. Uh, and that Eddie Gallagher probably is, is has some kind of, of of mental illness that he's he's sort of contracted through his 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 SEAL training. When you were watching the January sixth riots and and the aftermath, and we saw there were the military members involved there, 
did that did that connect to you at all that there's some sort of through line between sort of what we're doing to our troops and and, and what happens when they come back? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I I, I I don't say with any certainty that Eddie Gallagher has a mental illness. Um, I do think it is important to to understand the context with, within which the Eddie Gallagher trial and all these sort of transgressions among mm-hmm. SEALs are happening. Um, so I, I do just want to make that point. But I will say with the January 6th thing, no. And because the reason – the reason I it doesn't take me there is because that that is the political strain of what happens with seals. You know, very many are 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 aligned with the right and come out in 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 in, in ways uh, as conservatives. Uh, you know, they they run for they run for Congress, uh, they they run for governor. Uh, you know, touting their sort of seal experience. Um, for me, the 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 sort of political the minute you start talking about politics and Trump, the the minute you start talking about the things that aren't the seals like and and I just I I I I wasn't surprised that there might be some seals involved on January 6th but to me uh it's just it's just a small part of their story that I think other people have been talking about so this is a podcast it's out now um it will eventually also be an Apple TV I think four part uh yeah. documentary film uh series in in the fall are you involved in that as well or did you just handle the podcast end it was an interesting process, and it's still ongoing. Um, it's basically um, we share research, uh, we share some team members, but it's basically um, two different mediums tackling the sort of same uh, the same subject matter and approaching it from different directions, uh, which is really interesting and exciting. I'm a consultant on that project. I have some input, but very little um, compared to everybody else on that team. Um, and what they're making is something completely different and and um and fascinating in its own way i mean it, it's such a which is great when it's such a big rich topic like and that's that's just, jigsaw that's that's alex gibney the the documentarian yeah. slash documentary uh uh yeah. production line guy we've had him on a bunch of times he's he's churning he and his team are churning out documentaries at an amazing clip right now incredible yeah and what a team like like to especially in 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 podcasting to be able to devote you know you know suing the government for evidence and doing FOIA requests and 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 really being aggressive about the about about getting all the information that we can get like working with somebody like Alex Gibney is is pretty amazing like i mentioned this is not your first podcast um you have been doing podcast for some time. Um, I can call you a podcast pioneer just because you've been doing it long enough. You did Missing Richard Simmons years ago. The sort of in this, you were one of the first big podcasts, as I recall, to come out sort of in the post-serial boom. Do I have that chronology right? Yeah. F- yeah. Serial was 2014. And I was 2017. So how did you get into podcasting. I, I mean, there is no sort of standard podcasting track, I think, um, but you have a particularly interesting history. Yeah, I never came. I, I did not come from the radio, from the audio world. I didn't come from the sort of NPR, This American Life type place. Um, I was a television producer uh, for 20 years, and then and then I was making documentaries. Um, so I would make, uh, I was a producer of The Daily Show. Uh, which, which Daily Show era was that? Oh, God. I started right when John started. So 99, believe it or not, is when I started. So you came in with uh, Ben Carlin and that, that group? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, and so super interesting time of just like, and I was a, I was a producer, so I was producing the, writing and directing the field segments with the correspondents. And so I'd travel around the country, you know, with these incredibly funny, smart people like Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. uh, and meet and talk to interesting, very often strange, very often high-profile people um, and approach, you know, 
on the, on the one hand, it's sort of journalism parody, but on the other hand, it's journalism with just a very specific slant. When that was stuff was novel and new and there was this, it, was, it wasn't it was Borat exactly, but there was always a question about whether the subjects you were interviewing were in on the joke or not. And um, very, very often, they very most of the time, they were not in on the joke. As a matter of fact, when I was when I started The Daily Show, they didn't have Comedy Central in Washington, D.C. So you would call and you would say, I'm from The Daily Show, and they would just hear the Today Show, it sounds so bland that they, nobody would, they just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had people, especially in politics, who just didn't even know what it was, um, which is sort of a, an amazing place to start. And yeah, I mean, it, it was, it, you definitely had to be careful. Um, you definitely want to pick your targets. You definitely want to punch up. Um, but uh, but it was uh, it was thrilling uh, to, uh, to be there as, a, as that place grew and to watch John sort of, you know, create his own niche in the world. It's funny to remember that was like a big chunk of The Daily Show for a while. And, it, and, be, and then I think that eventually sort of became de-emphasized and I think eventually became harder to get people who didn't know what the joke was. Yeah, that probably 100%. went away as well. You also yeah. uh, made what was my, I think were involved in, in what was my children's favorite show for a while, Destroy, Build, <laughs> Destroy with Andrew yeah. W.K. yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, it was a kids show. Kids, uh, it was a kids game show. Kids blow things up. Uh, they make new, th- they make new things from the wreckage, like a, a catapult or a robot, and then they compete with those things that they make, like a big race or something. And then whoever wins gets to blow up what the other team built. Uh, just super stupid, loud, but also really creative and interesting. And their kids are building things and sort of getting a concept of what engineering is. And uh, so it was just the kind of show that I would have wanted to watch when I was young. So really fun to make. Yeah, I highly um, recommend trying to dig it. I don't know where it's streaming. I assume it's streaming somewhere. Uh, it's on iTunes. Yeah, it's there on you iTunes, go. Yeah. Uh, so you go from there to podcast how? Uh, accidentally. Uh, I had uh, started taking a class uh, with Richard Simmons in Los Angeles. Uh, 12 bucks a class, three times a week. Uh, I didn't go three times a week. God, nobody could do it that often. Um, but, um, and it's incredible. Uh, you know, he cries every class and um, he is just this incredibly inspiring, incredibly hilarious, um, fraught, complicated guy. Um, and we got to know each other um, and we began to talk uh, immediately. We were talking about potentially doing a documentary. It took like a year and a half before the conversations got serious and we started to get to know each other. And then he um, he stopped being Richard Simmons uh, one day. And he was also one of the most public celebrities that basically ever existed. He would come out of his house multiple times a day to greet tour buses. Um, anybody could have access to him. He would wake up in the morning and call people who were three, four, five hundred pounds, you know, morbidly obese and really sort of um, their lives were in danger. And he would call them and work with them um, on a daily basis. Uh, and uh, he just stopped being that person. Uh, and so after a while, it just became a project of why did that happen? But why did you think this is something that I want to make a multiple part podcast series about? You could have uh, just you could have done nothing. You could have written an essay about it. You could have made a movie about it. Yeah, I mean, it started as a, it started as a film. Uh, and then a couple things. It was suggested to me that it would make a good podcast um, by, the, by, by, by the people who ultimately funded it. Um, and I think the reason that worked is that it was also sort of a personal story in that I was taking this class and I knew Richard and I knew a lot of the people involved. It's really hard to make a, a documentary film like that where the director um, is a character. Uh, very often Michael Moore does it, right? But then it usually sucks when it's not him. 
Yeah, and I, it's a lot. It's a lot. And I'm not sure that I'm the guy to be doing that. But in podcasts, there's somebody in your ear. You, somebody needs to narrate that story. And so that that really works. And I will also say that the other really important reason is that a lot of the people that, that, that were most affected by the story are people who don't want to be seen on camera. They were people who have issues with their weight. Um, a, a lot of people have self-esteem issues. And and how they look, was it was just not something they wanted to deal with. But uh, talk, like uh, recording an audio conversation, mm-hmm. like, Mm-hmm. It, it was much more they were just they would just open up and so the format just really worked for that it's interesting right i found that a bunch doing my podcast just people are just so much more relaxed even though you know there's a video we are we are looking at each other on a video screen but as soon as you tell people we're not recording this this will not be on you know camera they they relax they yeah. open up even though it's being recorded even though the same number of people are, or more are going to consume it it's just, voice makes them more comfortable totally totally and I, it feels less performative for them Mm-hmm. And so I remember when that podcast came out, it eventually got blowback. People thought you were being too invasive and you want, they wanted you to leave Richard Simmons alone. It also became known as sort of almost the archetype sort of post-serial podcast where <laughs> it is both, you know, it's the story about someone, but it's also the story about the podcaster and yeah. you're, you're, you're searching for this thing, but then you don't really find it in the yeah. end. Yeah. Um, this was, But this was all before that became an archetype. Did you have a sense of what you were doing at the time? I mean, it kind of sounded like serial, but it wasn't really serial. But a lot I of really things now was, sound like that. Yeah, I mean, I really liked serial. I don't remember patterning it on that, but, I, but I'm sure there were things that I was just picking up subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, the open-endedness of it was what I loved about it. Like, we embarked on this not knowing if we would ever talk to Richard and if he would ever explain what was going on and if, or if he would ever talk to the people that we were interviewing saying that they didn't that they felt ghosted. And, and that sort of dynamic was really interesting. But podcasts, there's just less of a – the stakes are a little lower financially. And I was very used to television and, and the television world where, like, nobody's taking a risk on a movie where they don't know the ending. That nobody's, nobody's screwing around with that. And so, but with a podcast, they're like, all right, let's see what happens. And I just really liked that dynamic. Um, and so uh, that was thrilling. And I, so I still like about it. I love a good non-ending, I will say. I think that there's something emotionally really interesting about that. Sorry. It is, although we all kind of lean on it though, right? Like in the end, you end up with a shrug. I mean, now it's become almost the standard, like who will know, or we never really found out, or what do you right. think? Um, which I think to <laughs> some people is, is unsettling. Like you couldn't end a magazine article that way, generally. You'd want something right. that is is more conclusive or definitive or something. But I think that is- that's also where it, it, it to me it's like if it's done well, if if you can do, and it's really hard to do. But like all the questions that are important have no answer. What's the meaning of life? What happens after we die? And I don't want to say that that missing Richard Simmons is anything near that, but it sort of approaches that place in your heart a little bit of like, gosh, I don't know how I feel now, and I love that space. Yeah, I do too. I like making podcasts. I like listening to podcasts. <laughs> um, this Netflix and Amazon brought us the golden age of, of documentaries because they needed content that they could buy in bulk. Documentaries are cheap to make. Uh, turns out there was a big audience for them, and it seems like we're carrying that on with podcasting. As someone who makes this stuff now for a living, do you feel like, first of all, do you agree that we're sort of in a golden age of podcast documentaries or or, or am I overstating it? I mean, I, I can't predict the future. The golden age might be in five years from now mm-hmm. when somebody's doing something really freaking amazing. Uh, I think it's pretty great right now. There's a lot. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and I would never complain about my position in, in this world. I mean, I, I sort of hit 
hit it at the right time and have been able to keep doing it uh, and get people to invest in, in in what I'm making. I think it's a precarious time for a lot of people because what what at first seemed like uh, like a medium that has a very low, if zero, um, barrier to entry uh, that that that's that's certainly not the case anymore. They're easy to make, but will anybody hear it? Uh, not easy to make, but they they can be inexpensive to make the most inexpensive types of podcasts. Right. If you had a podcast, if you had made a podcast in 2010, 2011, 2012, you were one of not very many podcasts. And now yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. glut of them. So in this case, yeah. you were saying Apple and uh, Apple came and pitched you on this. I assume that makes it easier for you to go for it. You're like, all right, Apple's going to make sure people can hear this. Yeah, I mean that definitely was like no knowing knowing that Apple was was going to take a, a swing at, at not just not just platforming podcasts but actually creating that uh, absolutely I thought I mean you know the, the the types of things that I make aren't aren't are cheap in in the grand scheme of things in terms of comparing to film but in terms of other podcasts they're not cheap yeah uh, give us so. a sense of what's what's involved there's a there's a there's a long there's a long there's there's a long list of people in your credits who made the thing I mean how many folks were working on this show altogether uh, on the line mm-hmm. uh, the, the core team was uh, was Lizzie Jacobs my producer uh, then I had an editor Jody Avergan um, uh, Diane Hodson was my investigative producer I had two APs um, that we were sharing with the film side of the project um, and then there's a lot you know I have we have composers uh, that I that I work with on all my on all my projects uh, John Hancock and Mark Orton um, who are who are film composers so it's a team. It's not like it's not like me and another person. It's a team. It's a team, it, but compared to a TV set or a movie set, it's a it's a yeah. Fraction. When I was doing Destroy Build Destroy, I mean, there was a hundred people on set every day, uh, mm-hmm. and that's not that's not what's happening here. And I love that. What's your sense of what what the the apples and Spotify's the the platforms, the people who are paying you for your podcast? What do, what do they want right now? What's 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 your sense as a seller of what the market looks like? I don't consider myself a. Seller, I consider myself a maker, and I think that that is the. I think that's the difference that maybe explains what they're looking for. I feel pretty. I just want to make what I want to make. I want to make. Here's what I want to make. Somebody help me make it, and I and I want really smart people to help me make it and and make it a collaborative project. But I think they want that sort of. I think it's what anybody wants is that sort of personal passion. The minute you come in with the sort of clown car of like 20 pitches of like, here are the podcast, I can make these Mm -hmm. podcasts for you. Like, then I think that's sort of the first sign that they're going to be less, uh, there's going to be less oomph behind them because nobody really cares as much as you want them to. But I I think the thing that I'm sort of invested in is just like, if I'm going to make this, I'm going to, I'm going to throw myself into it. That's the sort of interest for me. Right. And I think that passion is what is what gives a podcast a better chance of succeeding. I like that clown car metaphor. I'm just imagining you pulling out pitch after pitch after pitch. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. That's like, that's how it, yeah, that's how it was in television for sure. They just want to hear like a million and it's just like, it's silliness. What else you got? <laughs> what's what's your next project? Um, I am, uh, I'm, I have a, a project that is coming out uh, that I'm, I'm going back to work uh, with, uh, with the folks at Pineapple Street Studios, uh, who I made my first three podcasts with. Um, and, uh, and we are making a project together that comes out uh, at the end of July or early August, and I feel like I shouldn't say what the subject is, but it's dark and funny and uh, probably shouldn't be doing it, uh, but uh, but I think it's going to be wonderful. I'm really excited about it. Okay, I'm sold. I will listen. Dan Tabersky, <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah, man, this is great. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Dan. That was a fun chat. 
Um, it's always fun to talk to another podcast about how they do what they do. Thanks again to Jessica Tunkel for talking to us about Amazon and MGM. Thanks to Joel and Jelani for editing and producing this show and to our sponsors for letting us bring this show to you for free. This is Recode Media, and we'll have another episode next week. See you then. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.